that discomfort that allowed me to still do what I really, really loved, be around what I really, really loved was far more valuable to me than my friends who had great jobs. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Salema Masakela. How are you? I'm well, man. I am enjoying uh, faux summer in Los faux Angeles. Summer. You're in LA. Yeah. Nice 84 degrees in Santa Monica today. It was. I'm actually sweating right now. Like actually. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I, I live in Venice, so I'm just next yeah. door to you. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if it's a if it's a good thing, if it's just normal Santa Ana conditions or if, you know. The shit that we're doing is showing up. I think it's probably the latter, and I'm not like irrationally, you know, climate change guy, but it's still like it's an obvious thing. I think at this point, even the you know U.S. military, normally conservative branch, has said, you know, we hey, climate change is a real thing and will affect our ability to be a military in 20 years. So I think at this point we can say climate change is a real thing, no matter who, what side you're on, and. I wouldn't say it's Santa Ana. I'm looking out my window. Santa Ana brings wind. There's not much wind out there right now. Yeah, if you drive north to Malibu, you you do get uh, the wind was howling. Um, okay. Yeah, we, we yeah we didn't we didn't get the same effects down south here yesterday or today. I mean, I'm a surfer uh, and a snowboarder, so both of those those you know both of those passions make you a, a glorified. I'll be at shitty uh, weatherman. So I, I'm a I'm almost done with my pilot's license as well. I've passed my weather test, so I had to learn how to read charts and weather charts now too. So way more sensitive and aware of it these days than ever was before. Yeah, I bet. Where do you yeah. fly? Santa Monica, right, right on that border. So I will be flying tomorrow night. But yeah, to to jump into this, got to take it back to the very beginning. I assume you you know, you're born, you're in the hospital, you start, you know, figuring out how to rearrange everything to make sure you can get the shot. You start talking to the doctor about, you know, maybe interviewing him. Like, how did it all start? Where are you from? Excuse me. My mother and father had me here in Los Angeles. Nice. And then, a rare breed. Yeah, rare breed. And then my mother moved back to New York City uh-huh. when I was about two. And my father followed shortly afterwards. But both of them came here from other countries. My mother came from Haiti uh-huh. and my father from South Africa. And they met in Los Angeles in the, uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And are you the oldest or only? I am uh, the only product of my mother and father. And then I have a sister from my father and another marriage and a brother from my mother and another marriage. Got it. So two halves on different sides. Yeah. Nice. Two, ha- two halves that are, you know, just as whole to me as, as yeah. you know, as, siblings. we all grew up the same way. Yeah. I get it. I've got two They're technically half siblings, but same deal. Yeah. Very lucky. Um, yep. that, that's the relationship and the closeness that we have. Feel the same way. It's it's amazing when you can have sort of a modern family, but you all get along and can be close too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I grew up in New York. You know, I yep. grew up in New York until I, from about, yeah, two years of age till I was about 14, 15. 
was in New England as well for a couple of years. And then uh, my, my mother and stepfather ended up in Southern California, uh, specifically the North County of San Diego when I was 16. Now I get the surfing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you move to a place called Carlsbad. You yeah. don't have any comprehension of where it is you're going or what the culture is other than like looking in an encyclopedia and you get there in the late eighties and you're like, Oh, this is what people do here. You yeah. know, they, they ride skateboards, they ride surfboards, they dress funny and they talk weird, but they look like they're having a good time. So well, late eighties, North County, San Diego is like the heyday of skateboarding started to pick up to that too. Huh? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, I went to Carlsbad high school, the, the Carlsbad yeah. gap was my, was, 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 was my high school. But yeah, it was it was it was a, a, the perfect place for both, and also it was a big center of where sort of the action sports, the skateboarding, surfing, and even snowboarding industry yep. kind of had their had their their hubs. What's his name? Snow uh, Sean White's from Encinitas, right next to Carlsbad, right? Yeah, he's, I, yeah, he's from Encinitas. I I moved to Encinitas shortly after I graduated high school, which is only about like ten yep. minutes south. But um, yes, it's a is it's a it's a place where the entirety of the community kind of revolves around those cultures. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're a lot cooler. If you grew up in Carlsbad or, or Encinitas or, or Lucadia, you're a lot cooler if you skate and surf than you are if you play on the basketball or football teams. Yeah. No. And it's, it's a, it was a, I had a lot of friends down there growing up. I used to go down there and do all of those things, surf, skate, we'd all go boarding. Like it's fun. So Go, taking it back to New York before you're, you're up to your 16 or I guess 14, like mm. how was it growing up there? How were your parents involved? What kind of things were you into as you were growing up? Were you always like, I want to be in front of a camera or I want to be producing things or? No, no. My father was a musician. My father was a jazz musician. So okay. my, I was exposed to the arts at a very early age. Like I, I spent my time as a kid at like five, six years old. I mean, my earliest memories with my dad are being in jazz clubs with him. So I watched him him play and perform, and he had an incredible stage presence, and he was a a dope storyteller. So that was something that I, that I was a natural for me to be to be curious about. And then you know, growing up in New York City, you are you you get to be super surrounded by the arts. You know, as kids, you go to Broadway on field yeah. trips and. You go to see the uh, dance shows and, and things and you get cultured, so to speak. And, um, you know, in my elementary school, they put instruments in our hands at, at seven or eight years old. You know, I, so I was playing in the band and singing in the choir from elementary school all the way through in the high school and, and, and doing plays and stuff. So I was really into in into like and I also grew up in the in the in the in the in the the explosion and the birth of hip hop. So, you know, I'm a B-boy and I got my dance crew. And yep. um, so that kind of like performing as, as, as sort of like competition or showing off amongst friends that like creative competition was something that I was used to at a very young age and, and being in front of a crowd is something that I was comfortable with, but I didn't have any real, aspirations to do what I do today. I mean, there was definitely a part of me that thought like, oh, it'd be cool to act because my father was, was such a successful musician. I was definitely sort of like intimidated by, by, by music. I love being around it, but the idea of making it was like, well, there's already somebody in the family who's crushing it there. 
Um, so it was very unlikely that I got to to the place that I that I am now, especially when my parents moved to to San Diego, because it was sort of like kind of derailed whatever chance I might have had at 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 the arts. Like I wanted to go to an arts high school. You did, okay. and then they, yeah. But then they moved. Then they moved to to Carlsbad, which was that, that was not the case. <laughs> but surfing, surfing really like changed my life. You know, the first time I stood up on a surfboard, I was like. It was, I think that was the most spiritual experience that I'd ever had to date. I'd grown up, grown up going to church, but it didn't feel like what it felt like in the ocean, uh-huh. what that moment felt like. And so my whole life sort of just targeted that way. And when I graduated high school, I didn't have any desire to go to college. I just wanted to like, okay, how can I keep on doing this as much as possible? Yeah. Snow, snowboarding came six months after I started uh, surfing. And I happened to live in a place where it wasn't entirely Im- impossible. I mean, you know, you had friends who were sales reps for different brands and surf yeah. brands and skate brands. And, and, you know, I worked in a shop and you're like, oh, maybe I can get a job at one of these brands, et cetera. And it was just, you know, it was, it, it was, it, it wasn't an abnormal admiration, yeah. uh, uh, aspiration to be like, how can I not get a real job? How can I, how can I stay to clo- as close to this as possible? Yep. But I mean, that also involved me like cleaning car dealerships and medical offices uh, yep. at night until five, six in the morning and then going straight to the water and then and being a part time bank teller on my off days and yep. waiting tables and busing tables and all those things that, you know, to to support my habit, so to speak, you know. And were you competing or was it just you love you like wanted to do it like as a hobby or was there any appointment? I, I, yeah. I was. I wasn't competing, but I got good quick. Uh-huh. But the kids, the kids in my school, and you know, they had been surfing for since yeah. they were like six, seven, eight years old. You know, and yeah. for me, I started like two months before my seventeenth birthday. Yeah. So I was all the way late, and there was nobody else that looked like me for miles, let alone anyone who looked like me that were doing these sports. So it was, it was kind of far-fetched and rather incomprehensible for people to even conceive that like, Oh no, this is, this is how I wanted to live. Yeah. Got it. And so how long did that lifestyle, first of actually, I'm curious, how were your parents about it? When you said, I don't want to go to college. I just want to, you know, work odd jobs so I can surf all day. Yeah, they were a bit freaked out. You yeah. know, I remember, um, my mother, by that time, my mother and my father had been you know, they, they'd been apart since I was like two, but they, they maintained a healthy friendship in the interest of parenting me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember them sort of having a summit, <laughs> them, my step parents and my dad to be like, what's going on with, with this dude. And my dad, you know, he, he was the most level-headed because he was a creative. My, my parents, my, my, my stepfather was not stoked at all. Um, my mom was definitely confused, but my, my my dad was definitely the most level-headed. He's like, I get it. I get that you love this thing. Yep. You just got to figure out a way to get close to it, to get to get in it. Like, what's the job? What's the thing? What do you want to do? Do you want to you want to move to Hawaii and see if you can make it as at, like as as a pro? Like, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And he said, because right now, what you're doing is not cool. <laughs> and like, those guys are cool. You know, the people who live that lifestyle that figure out how to make it, they're cool. You're not cool right now. So figure out how to how to get 
as close to it as possible. And then you'll see what happens. And parent feedback and that unfiltered, just, you're not cool. Sometimes you need to hear, I, I get the same thing. Sometimes you need to hear it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And my dad was cool. It was yeah. also like, it was great to have a dad who was, my dad was like cool, like super, yeah. super cool. You know, he's a South African jazz musician, (laughs) traveling the world and writing Broadway plays and doing all sorts of dope shit. And he's like, figure out a way to be fucking cool in this thing. Yeah. And um, that opportunity would literally be as a receptionist, as an intern at Transworld Skateboarding and Snowboarding Magazine. I was was 20 when I got that job. Just just before my 21st birthday. Got it. And so so you spent a couple of years, I guess, out of high school. Figuring all, it out. Doing all the jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was yeah, I was 21 when I got that job. Well, maybe okay. almost 22 when I think about it. But yeah, I did construction. I worked in the bank. Uh, like I said, weighted tables, bus tables, bar back, janitorial service, window cleaning. Uh, um you name it, pretty much I did it. And a lot of stuff that was of like within the service industry. Yep. And I'm I'm you know, I I I I'm so, so grateful that I, that I got to work in those touch points where I dealt with people at a very human level. Like when you're a bank teller and someone comes in to cash your, their, their, their check or make a deposit, you get a real glimpse into the totality of what they're going through in their life. Yep. You can see their stress as they're trying to make decisions about what bills they're going to pay, et cetera. And you wish that you could reach into your drawer and give them money. Yep. You know, when you, when you work in an office building and you're cleaning it late at night. You see the people who are there late, like stressed out, trying to make deadlines, et cetera. Those are things that like, and I, I was always conversational. So people kind of open up to me about where they were at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through all of that, I think it just very much, I had a really healthy respect for, for uh, the wide landscape of the differences that make us, you know, interesting as human beings, as a collective. Yep. You know, I, I didn't come, I didn't, I didn't have any airs that to, to make me think that like I was especially cool because everybody, you know, like we said at the beginning of this conversation, you're like, oh, you realize everybody's got a story. Yeah, it's totally true. So you end up getting this job at Transworld. How did that happen? I was busting tables at a place called the Potato Shack in Encinitas mm-hmm. and a bunch of, bunch of people came in. They were on their way to the action sports retailer trade show in San Diego the ASR trade show and they all had badges on and a bunch of them worked at Transworld and some of them were at, at brand, different brands. They had the names of their brands that they were at on their badges. And I saw the table and I was like, Whoa, that's my people. And it wasn't my section. So I had to negotiate with my, my friend, Greg Whiffle to get that table. And he made me pay him five bucks. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm not going to make five bucks on that table. He was like, well, if you want it, he was like, Canadian, ironically, who are supposed to be the yeah, usually they're people, friendly. But was, yeah, but he was he was a, was a, a real Canadian hustler, Greg Whipple. <laughs> I gave him the five bucks, started talking to the table, styling them out with extra coffees and you know orange juices, etc., and asking them what they did. And they started talking to me about their jobs. One person did ad sales, another person was like a graphic artist, and they were all like super passionate surfers and snowboarders and skateboarders but they had jobs in the space yep and um one guy chad denena he 
who worked at Transworld and ad sales, he started coming in on a regular basis. We became homies. And then one day he was just like, yo, what are you doing with your life? Like, what are you doing here? Like, you're engaging and clearly like you're, you're passionate about, about shredding. Like, what are you doing? You should be working in the industry. And I was like, well, yeah, that'd be amazing. And long story short, he told me that they were looking for a junior ad sales rep uh-huh. and to, to call him on the following Monday. This was on a Saturday. And I could come in for an interview and train underneath him. And I was so stoked, but also so freaked out that someone had given me this kind of opportunity that I didn't call him on that Monday. I called like really? on Wednesday. I, yeah, for some reason, I was just, I was scared. It was just too, too good to be true. And by the time I called him that Wednesday, he was like, dude, I told you to call me on Monday. You fucking blew it. Um, we, we hired somebody. Then he called me back two days later on a Friday and said that their receptionist had decided that she wanted to go back to school. And if I wanted to hustle, I could come in and answer phones and see where it goes from there. So I went from like getting a real job, yeah. like junior ads, learning the ad, ad sales route during the explosion of snowboarding and skateboarding to like, you can answer the phones yeah. <laughs> and see. And it's uh, crazy that little is. like. That, and obviously it's worked out, but in that moment, like that, that little, you know, that fear that was driven there, you ended up not calling and missing that one opportunity. It's just so kind of indicative of life in the sense of like these little things and little decisions we make. Don't get me wrong. It can work. The longer the story goes, the more it can work out anyways. But in that vacuum, like that opportunity was missed because of waiting a couple of days. It, 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 it was, but it, I think it ended up being it ended up being a strange gift in that I had to like, man, I had to hustle in that building, you know, stop stuffing envelopes for the photography department uh, or, or, you know, for the editorial department or doing shit for, for the ad sales guys, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to know the landscape of how the magazine worked. People got to see that I was really, the, the guy at the front desk was really passionate about the thing. Yeah, and I ended up getting off the phones a couple of months off of answering the phones within about six months because the woman who worked in product sales who pushed like the t-shirts and and the videos um, on shops and and the, the Transworld swag said, "I want I want you to try and, and sell some videos. Everybody loves you on the phone when 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 they call." And so they were selling these video magazines. She, she gave me like a ledger of shops to call how many videos they they'd uh, ordered the last time and i started cold calling these shops and by the end of the day when she came to check on me i'd sold more videos that day than the previous person had sold in a month <laughs> there and, you go and so she promptly went to the hr woman and said i need him how about if he um answers phones in the mornings and sells videos in the afternoon. And that's kind of when things started to take off for me. And shortly after that. And what do you think caused that success? Is it because you were passionate about it? You were able to call these shops, which obviously shop guys at shops are usually just the same. And you're able to just be like, this is a dope video. You got to buy it. Or like, where was that, that you think you were so successful? It was less about the video and more about finding common ground with these kids that were just like me in shops across the country, having conversations about the thing that we love. What's it like there? Here's what it's like here. 
you know, yeah. and here's what's happening at the magazine. What's going to be in the next issue that you want to look out for or this pro or this person that I got to skate with the other day. And I, I, I was the equivalent of the internet to them because yeah. I was at the headquarters of the industry and they were, we had this, this connected fashion that you could hear on the phone. Like we're both in the thing at different angles of it. And I think that was really the key for me was, was being able to build connection with people. And like I talked before that that's what all those years of working in various like areas of, of just jobs of service really, really prepared, prepared me for. I was just genuinely curious about people and that helped. And then by the end, they'd be like, yeah, dude, how, what do you got? Like, sure. I'll take 20 of them. You know? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's, and did it do, I guess down the line, I'm guessing it was also easier when you called them back with the next thing. Like, Oh, you again, what's up? Yeah. And then I could like hit him for the, t- for the t-shirts and the sweatshirts and the yeah. beanie package yeah. and, and all that. And then, you know, you see him at the trade show and now you got these, you got friends. Yeah. Um, it was, it was awesome. You know, I mean, and you got to think like, that's, that's all that only method of, of communication you had, you had to call someone, Yeah, you know, lost emails. Art. yeah, it was a lost, lost, lost art. You had to, you had to build connection with people. And yeah. that really prepared me for so much of what my future would, would be. And, and at the end of the day, it's all storytelling, you know, yeah. that's life. And so where to progress from there? You're now in sales, you're selling videos and t-shirts and hoodies and everything. What, how did it kind of progress from there? From there, I, I got a job at a skateboarding company called Planet Earth Skateboards. Got it. Yeah. Planet Earth Skate, Skateboards and, and Clothing, working for the legendary Chris Miller. Um, I was doing sales for him, calling shops. And then by that time I had, because of my time at the magazine, I'd become super, super well-versed in the snowboarding industry as well. Mm-hmm. And Chris wanted to start a snowboarding outerwear brand. So I helped him do that, put together the team and started sort of team managing and doing sales. Have and you watched the uh, Jake Burton documentary yet? Yeah, I'm in it. Are you? I missed yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm just very, watched it. I'm very much in it. I'm, I'm commentating the U.S. Open. And so, you know, you, you see me and then you, you hear a lot of me. I mean, I, yeah. I cl- close out the video, the movie sort of getting into context that scene yep. where all the riders are coming down and, and yep. talking about snowboarding as a family. Yeah. Yep. I'm, got it. Now I remember. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So yeah. I, I, so you, you helped start the outerwear brand with Chris Miller. Yeah. I did that. And then, um, I worked for, for Reebok. They, they started a, a division of their brand called box. So I'm real quick. I'm curious. Yeah. What caused you to leave trans world? What caused you to leave Chris? Like what caused you to move around? I hate my, I'm the, the woman that I worked for at Transworld was just a horrible human being. <laughs> Got it. Just a, a chain smoking, just she, 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 she literally drove the kids who worked for her on the phone with hatred in her heart. So, you know, it would, back then you could like scream and yell and curse at somebody and throw stuff at them. And it was cool. Everybody felt for me, but there was nothing no one could do about it. And HR wasn't going to, fire her she she represented a lot of a lot of money for the magazine so i finally just came the push came to shove and uh, she fired me and i was devastated because i had found my dream job but i was surfing at this place called seaside 
in Cardiff, on the Cardiff-Solana Beach border in San Diego. And there was one other person out on this very small day, and it happened to be the only other, like, there was another person out, and it happened to be a black guy in the water with me. And that was like two unicorns <laughs> meeting in a, in a, in a, in a, in an, in an open field for thousands of miles and being like, wait, what? And, you know, we instantly paddled up to each other. I was like, who are you? He's like, who are you? And we started talking and we had this instant commonality. And I told him where I worked. And it turned out that he worked at Planet Earth in sales. He had recently retired as a pro skater. And he was like, dude, come in. I'll, um, I'll get you an interview. That's how that started. You know, I got I, I got to sit down and have an in- interview with uh, with my with my one of my heroes. I had pictures of Chris Miller on my wall. And now I'm sitting here having a, this guy's in, interviewing me to work at his company. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, and um, it was it was it was really amazing. That's how I got my job there. And so what yeah. caused you to want to leave to go to Reebok? As much as I love doing phone sales, I like. I like being at events. I like, I liked, uh-huh. I, I really loved what team managers got to do, like to travel with the team and go to contests. A friend of mine that was, that was the marketing director at Billabong said, Hey, there's a team manager position available. The Reebok's doing this thing and I, and I can get you an interview. And I, I got the interview with this guy named Nick Adcock. And he, he loved the fact he loved all the, places I'd been and all these different touch points that I had from retail to athletes, et cetera, from, you know, what my story had been so far. That's how I got the job there. And that was amazing. You know, I was, I was, I managed the surf team, snowboard team, uh, skate team. And it was, I got, I got to, 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 to travel around a bit, do R and D at Reebok in, in Boston, you know, trying to build skate shoes and snowboard boots with, with, pro snowboarders and skaters and it was a, a really really amazing couple of years there and and because i was always at these different events trade shows you know then this is before the x games really are happening you know we'd always take turns on the microphone announcing at these various events you, you, you know it was it was all diy so it's like oh who's gonna get on the mic like you want it cool and so I would always be one of those people who was unafraid to to sit and and and, and talk story and commentate runs. And I got kind of a reputation to be like, hey, if you're having a demo or a contest and that guy's around, you should you should put him on the mic. So that was kind of happening concurrently while um, I was traveling and going to these different contests. And what year was this about? Uh, I'd say this was in like 95, 96. Okay. Awesome. And so you're at Reebok for a couple of years is what you mm-hmm. said. And yeah. What happened next? What's the next path? Reebok realized that they probably sold like, I think Reebok realized that they sold like boys, medium soccer t-shirts. Total sales were more than all of the skate shoes <laughs> and, and snowboard boots that they were doing with this fledgling box brand they were just like what are, what are we someone someone in accounting um or in pnl was like this is stupid why <laughs> why are we doing this and uh someone looked and said you're right and they just 
canceled it. My boss called me one day and he's like, mate, he's Australian. Mate, box is dead, mate. She's gone belly up. <laughs> and uh, I was, I found myself sort of asked out again, trying to figure out what next, you know, the, it was all about trying to stay as close to the dream as possible. And yep. And were you I, still surfing all the time, boarding all the time? Like, was Oh yeah. I mean, that was the, the, the best thing about the jobs, all those jobs. So I, it was the first time that I found people who were like, the waves are good. We should go in late. Yeah. <laughs> a storm. There's, you know, the, the snow is going to be good. We should bust our asses Monday through Thursday so that we can leave Friday and, and go ride for a few days. And that was considered good for business. Yeah. You know, um, you want to leave early and, and go catch a, a sunset session after work. Yeah. Let's do that. Go surf at lunch, you know, go skate at lunch. Those were things that were like normal and not considered weird. Yeah. And, and then obviously in getting to travel and go to, you know, various events as a team manager, I've suddenly found myself at the, on the front lines of like the greatest high performance that was taking place in all of these sports. Yep. That's awesome. And so you, what, tell me about like, so Bert, or sorry, uh, Reebok cuts this department. Was that like a stressful time or are you kind of like, all right, I'll figure it out. And like, you no, it was of, a super, super stressful time. Yeah. Shit. I was, I had like a stock of shoes in my, my little cubicle office that they rented for me in, um, a little satellite office that I had in Carlsbad. And I pretty much lived off of trading, trading those shoes in to secondhand shops for like four or five months. That's how I ate. And then suddenly you don't have any more shoes left to sell. Yep. The industry is going through an interesting shift and you're literally like trying to figure out like, yo, how am I going to, to eat. I, I, I remember at a certain point I tried to get, I tried to get my job back at the bank because I couldn't get wow. a job in the industry. Yep. And HR from the bank was like, you've quit and came back like four times. <laughs> no. Like, and we haven't seen you in years. No. I worked at a local skate shop at a certain point. I picked up shifts bar backing again at a place. And I thought for a certain, at a certain point, I was like, well, maybe this, this ride is over. And my old buddy, Chris Miller, um, by that time, planet earth had expanded into, um, was planet earth rhythm, the, the, the planet of snowboarding outerwear, they started audio footwear, thunder trucks, and they needed someone who could do team managing and, I, I now I had like real experience, and so they brought me in to do that. And it was uh, he gave me how, life, was that, life how long was I was gonna say, how long was that gap from when Reebok shut down? Do you got that about a year? Wow, I think I, I took yeah. that, that job in like '97 or something, uh huh. Yeah, it was about, about a year, and um, uh, yeah, it was, but it was good, it was humbling. You need that. You need that reset. It almost makes you value it more and work at it harder when you have it because you know it's fleeting. Yeah. I mean, I was never comfortable. Yeah. Ever. Right. Yeah. But that discomfort that allowed me to still do what I really, really loved, be around what I really, really loved, 
was far more valuable to me than my friends who had great jobs yeah. that they made money at, but they hated yeah. and they didn't surf or skate or snowboard anymore. Yeah. And I was like, well, who's really, who's really winning here or losing? here? Like you, whenever I see you, you just want to drink and tell me about how shitty your existence is. <laughs> Seems like the wrong way to go through life, huh? Yeah, man. I'm really, really glad that like, my parents didn't put any of that like aspirational. You need to be making X amount of money by this time. Yeah. Be, be married by this time or any of that stuff on me. And they let me, they allowed me, they accepted that like this dude's going to have to, to, to find out on his own. And as long as he doesn't kill himself along the way, we're good. Yeah. Which, you know, you take some risks snowboarding and surfing, but generally you can be pretty safe. Yeah, um, generally, generally you can. Generally, yeah. All right, so you go back, start managing the team. Tell me about what, what happened from there. From there, you know, things were starting to go pretty good. And I had, you know, I've, I've been in the mix now for, you know, four or five years. I have a strong reputation. The brand is going well. The brands are going well. I mean, Tony Hawk rode for audio. I was Tony Hawk's team manager. Got it. Yeah. Uh, uh, on, on audio. Yeah, 97 um, to 2002 were pretty good years for Tony Hawk. Yeah, that, that <laughs> last time I checked, they're still they're still good years for Tony Hawk. Touche, yeah. The great well, side note: I've spoken at three conferences with him, and every time because my company's Hawk Media, people just assume we're together. And it's I, I got invited to ride with the owners of Sunshine up in Banff because they thought Tony. He's like, they're like, bring Tony, and my business partner's name is Tony, so I'm confused. Going like, bring Tony, like Tony's back in California. Which they're like, oh, okay. Tony Hawk went back to California, and they're like, well, you should come. And then like connected the two dots. After I got there, the super awkward moment where they realized they caught, some schmuck marketing guy showed up thinking they worked with Tony Hawk. Hey, so got a few pictures together. You, I mean, <laughs> it's on your government ID. Get in where you fit in. Can't knock exactly. the hustle. Exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the Birdman would be somewhat impressed. Oh no, we've talked about it because I've seen him since. He, we've got pictures of him rocking the Hawk Media sunglasses and stuff. It's fun. That's awesome. Hey, maybe. And at some point you might come through and be like, Hey, uh, how much for the buyout? Yeah. And you're like, sweet. I always yeah. wanted to go chill in Turks and Caicos. Exactly. But yeah, man, that, that was, it was a good time, but I had a friend, my friend, Aliasha, who was an incredible designer. He was designing a lot of the stuff at DC footwear and snowboarding outerwear there and helping them with their boot program. He yeah. wanted to start a company, a clothing company. and he had positioned to me like, Hey, how, how dope would it be if we could start a, a, basically a black and brown owned clothing company in this space? Because most of the people who were running things were, were white kids mm -hmm. and none of the brands were owned by any people of color. There were athletes in the skateboarding and the things, but as far as like who was getting to run shit, none of us were in positions of decision-making and getting to create and have final say in story for a brand. And so we came up with a, with an idea concept and he called it alphanumeric. Mm -hmm. And we, we found a, a, a company that was willing, they, they, they liked the idea of what this alphanumeric environmental protect your mind uh, uh, company looked like. 
And um, that we started Alphanumeric Clothing. And about a year after Chris had given me my job back, I had to go sit in his office and tell him that I was leaving to go start my own company. How was that? Oh, it was horrible. It's like, he didn't freak out. He's the most like even toned, kind and loving person. And he just proceeded to tell me all of the things that I was in for um, <laughs> and the risk that I was taking in, uh, in going and, and starting this brand. But he wished the best for me. And nice. he'd, he'd given me and taught me so much. And I, I walked out of there, I remember in tears and then like got in the parking lot with like this rich, rich, rich sense of entitlement, of, of excitement that like, holy shit, we're starting a brand. Yeah. Like I've worked at all these brands and like been rejected from all these brands. And now like we have a concept that we think can maybe turn the industry on its head. And that's what we did, man. Ended up being a incredible uh, streetwear company, snowboarding mm-hmm. outerwear company. We were the first brand to kind of fuse together the idea of like punk rock and hip hop kids, mm-hmm. and and weave in car culture, uh, import import tuner car culture as well. Um, you know, we 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 were one of the first brands to support like a a, a female skateboarder on the team. And have her be on the same level as as uh, as the dudes, and we had a really interesting mix of like black kids um, and 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 brown kids that that ran the company, and our team was the most diverse team intentionally um, of of athletes that were you know black, Filipino, um, Asian, white. Like we really wanted to celebrate the totality of what what this lifestyle meant to all kids. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was a great, great time design wise. We flipped everyone's heads. I mean, Virgil Abloh to this day, like he definitely cites Alpha in America as being one of his main influences for what he does in streetwear today. Yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, you guys absolutely crushed it. And I, by the way, I come into this usually blind intentionally because I like hearing the story for is the same way the listeners are. And that's awesome. I know the brand. I mean, you guys, it's what's awesome to see is you did something, you know, listen, motivated, you wanted to build a business, but at the same time, you had a lot of sort of a cause side to it, which is much more in vogue now than it was then. But the need for that was there. And so you got the demand, you got the support because people wanted that. There was a huge market much bigger market underserved than it was even being served by these other brands. And you guys were able to jump into that. Yeah. And we didn't understand how no one couldn't see it. Right. Like it, everything for the most part was punk rock, SoCal angst driven. Yep. And everyone else was supposed to just sort of like find little cracks in between. But we're like, yo, there's a, there's a whole group of kids out here who are into everything that don't want to be put in a box anymore yeah. um, that would like to see each other through a, a lens that reminds them that of what that connectivity looks like. Yeah. And it was fun. And that's when I started doing, I was doing, I, I got my first, like the first thing that I did really on TV happened around that time as well. I mean, I had been doing, like I said, you know, yeah, random hosting, random hosting, uh, uh, random events. And that led to some like random public access style television where you're just interviewing your friends at contests on yeah. a show first on a show called uh, Planet X and another one called Bud Ford Wild. 
-hmm. But in the midst, while I was at Alpha in America, I got a, I got a break at MTV to be like the skateboarding guy alongside Carson Daly at the, the MTV Sports and Music Festival. Nice. And so how did that happen? Were you seeking that out or were you, you as you said, you were just hosting random stuff. So you got recommended by someone like, how did that come to be? Yeah. I mean, people, people would be like, oh, I saw you on that thing. Are you really good? And you got, again, remember like no internet. So yeah, you plop up for five minutes on a random ass channel. You can walk out your house the next day and people be like, dude, I saw you. And especially since it, there was so few ways to view action sports culture. If it happened, you know, you called your friends, be like, you would say like, we're on TV, yeah. you know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> because awesome. like the thing that you loved was on TV. Yeah. And I had a friend named Carl Harris who had taken an interest in me. It worked a little bit in, in, in skateboarding. And he got a production job at MTV, helping them like get their, the, the action sports, the shred lifestyle portion of the shit that they were doing right. And he was the one who just adamantly was like, you got to call my boy. You got to get my boy on here. You, the, the, pers <laughs> the person who's on here has to be legit. Otherwise, you guys are going to look stupid. And he convinced them and got me uh, an audition. And, and that's how uh, I got my first gig on MTV, literally with, with Carson at the, in, I think it was in, the first one was in Memphis, Tennessee at the Sports and Music Festival. And so did, was your time at that point, were you just doing, did you start doing more and more of that? Or were you fully focused on alphanumeric and this was a little side gig? Like, how did you look at it professionally? I was fully focused on alphanumeric. Okay. And in fact, like I was wearing alphanumeric, like giant alphanumeric logos on uh, MTV Sports and Music, which right was a do it. huge get. And, you know, the phone started ringing off the, the, the hook, like, yo, we saw, we saw, uh, we saw Sal. I went by Sal then yeah. uh, on MTV, you know, we're an alphanumeric and it grossly affected sales. It was like a Trojan horse moment. So I looked at it less as like, I'm going to be super famous out of this and more like, you know, I got the logo on TV, Yeah, but people were like, Hey, you're, you know, there was a guy, an exec at MTV who, who uh, took an interest in me and said, hey, you have a natural knack at this. Like, are you interested? Would you want to be a VJ? And I was like, I don't know if I want to be a VJ, but I like coming to these things. They started calling me for, for the various ones that they did. So it became a cool little hot side hustle yep. of, of, of sorts. And like I said before, it was like also like a you couldn't. We didn't have the budget for the what that marketing would have right. cost yeah. us. No, it's funny. We had we had Deer Deck on the podcast too, and we've done a bunch of work together. So I've heard the story of plugging stuff on TV. It's crazy what it could do. It's not the same anymore, but at that no. period of time, it was massive. For that period of time, like that was we we were, I guess, what you I mean, I hate the I think the term influencers is the worst thing ever, yeah. ever created. <laughs> But we we were we were helping to shape the culture at the time, yeah. and we were also shrewd in knowing like what the power of you know in, in skateboarding and, and and snowboarding and surfing there was a thing called photo incentive, and uh, like if you got a shot in a magazine and the logo was showing, 
your sponsors were going to pay you a bonus because the logo was visible and that was going to drive sales. But the opportunity to get that on television was next to nothing or never. Yeah. That kind of like broke getting shit on TV kind of changed the entire game because suddenly now, you know, the reach was, I mean, MTV was, was the cultural destination. It was, it was, it was, it was fucking TikTok on TV. Yeah, but it's it's TikTok except for everyone's running watching one stream and you are on it. Like it's the, exactly it's insane. Yeah. yeah, one yeah. one 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 single stream. Yeah, like the, I, I I tell kids all the time now. I'm like, y'all don't even realize like the lengths we had to do to get our voices remotely heard, and that now everyone has their voice can be heard in an instant via a multitude yep. of platforms. It's it's wild. Yeah. It is wild. And it's also like an inundation of brands now where it's like, it's not like that one brand, even if it was on something that everybody's watching, you get your brand on the Super Bowl now, it doesn't necessarily translate into anything anymore because they're getting hit up by so many things so often. Yeah. None of it matters anymore. Yeah. Now, when no. I'm actually, what I think it's done is like your story has to be so, so unique, so genuine and have the ability to connect that it can sift through the entirety of the bullshit and, and rise and, and build connection. Agreed. Gone are the days where like, you can't really fake shit anymore. No. And there's no silver bullet anymore. There used to be the quote, I mean, the Oprah effect was a thing. Doesn't really happen anymore. There's not one thing that you just do that. And all of a sudden it's off to success. Like it doesn't. Yeah. That one silver bullet. So how long did you, Grow Alpha and American, stick with that. How long was that part of your career? I stuck with Alpha and American for about three years. Okay. But in the midst of that, I got an opportunity to, I was, I had the Alpha and American team, snowboard team with me at an event in Breckenridge, Colorado, at the Vans Triple Crown of Snowboarding. Mm-hmm. And a guy came up to me in the bar at, after one of the day one of the event, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, excuse me, are you, are you Selma Keller? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm Phil Orleans. I'm the executive producer of uh, snowboarding at ESPN. And I literally looked at him and I said, that's cute. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Stood up in my bar stool and I yelled out to the rest of the bar to be like, whoever put this guy up to this really fucking funny. And I sat back <laughs> down. He tapped me on the shoulder again and said, no, I'm for real. And he pulls out like, the nicest business card I'd ever seen. Like with the, the gold leaf. Yeah. You know. You had your American psycho moment. Yeah. Like, the card. <laughs> yeah, the, the the textured, yeah, te- textured woven red leaf <laughs> ESPN on it. And sure enough, it said executive producer snowboarding X Games. I was like, what? He said, Yeah, man, I've se- we've seen you in some things. I'm here looking for you to talk to you about um, we're trying to bring in legitimate voices from within the culture to become commentators at the X Games because the stick and ball guys, men and women, they just, we can't teach this to them and it's not translating. And he bought a six pack. We went out into the lobby of the hotel and we talked for about four hours. And I told him all of the things that absolutely sucked about the X Games. And he listened. And then when he was, when we were done, he said, well, would, would you come out to Crested Butte in a couple of weeks and we'd like you to be the sideline reporter for snowboarding? And I was like, no, 
I think the X Games are and 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 up until that point, you, you you'd watch the X Games and you'd be like, yeah, we're on TV, but also like, oh, none of that is reflective of what the culture remotely is, you know, like extreme burgers, commercial, everything's extreme, et cetera, et cetera. You're listening to this commentary that is just like, like, I don't know what that is. And I just thought it was kooky. I thought, and I thought it was sort of ruining this thing that we've been like building at, at the core for, for the, you know, the last almost decade. And now this is how it's going to like, this is how it dies with a bunch of people who have, no interest in it, making money at it, but Taco Bell, et cetera, et cetera. And when I came back to, to, to work that Monday, we were in the morning eating at Alpha America and I'd tell my story and I'm like talking shit like, yeah, and this guy, ESPN, I told him no. And they're just like, what? <laughs> you said what? I mean, my boy Ali Asher was like, yo, what are you fucking thinking? Like, you could go there and make a difference. Like, you can't say no. And everyone else was like, yeah, dude, that's stupid. Like, if you got a shot at ESPN, like, we'll go. Like, we got you. And the guy called back a few days later to press me to come. And two weeks later, with the support of my squad, I was on a plane to Crested Butte, Colorado. And next, you know, I'm doing live television for the first time ever on ESPN. Yep. In interviewing my friends that were competing in the, in the, in the X, in this thing called the X Games. What year was that? 1999. Awesome. So this, and that kind of led its way to you continuing to do this, right? You, that's where you kind of pivoted to a TV career or did you? Yeah, I was still doing Alpha America, but like suddenly, like after that first X Games, something about what I did was connected and was a hit. And the network was like, a guy came to me at the network at the end of, end of the event. And he said, uh, do you know anything about skateboarding? I was like, yeah. He said, can you be in West Virginia in two, in two weeks for this, this qualifying event? I was like, sure. And that's how it began. And that's, I, you know, ESPN is where I went for like a, essentially my, my, my television and broadcasting education that other people paid for to go in communications in college. I got on the job at ESPN, you know, deep journalism seminars, learning how to do play-by-play, learning how to be a sideline reporter, alongside the best of the best from, you know, baseball, football, basketball, et cetera, like ESPN, because they own the X Games property. We're like, yeah. we're going to train y'all up right. Like, you know what you know about your sports. We're going to teach you about how to be um, uh, hosts and journalists. And that's when everything that I grew up with you know, the totality of my weird journey all sort of coalesced yep. in that space. And it was like, okay, I can play here. And I, and I had a passion, you know, my, my passion was to essentially like proselytize, almost evangelize to people about what really made what they were watching cool. You yep. know, why these athletes were cool, why they did what they did, what made the culture what it was. And I think that's what help set me apart and gave me an opportunity that like, you know, here I am two decades later and I'm still, I still got a seat at the table. Yeah. And so how long did that sort of sprint last of going from one thing to the other, hosting this next event, whether it's surf, skate, snow, et cetera, how long did you spend doing that? 
kind of haven't stopped. <laughs> haven't stopped? <laughs> as, we, as you, you said, know, I, mean, you're, I, I dropped the I movie mean, name and you're like, yeah, I did the closing. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was at ESPN for 13 years okay. uh, at X Games. I've been at with the Red Bull Media House for almost the last decade. Yeah. I, I host the Red Bull Signature Series there. Yeah. I still do, you know, some of the big premiere events on the World Surf League t- mm-hmm. uh, tour. Great group of people. Uh, yeah, great people. You know, I, I do Travis Rice's uh, natural selection. Oh, you do? Uh, nice. snow, snowboarding event. I'll be at Baldface in two months from, I think, today. I'll I'll be at Baldface uh, celebrating the New Year's. He will be. Nice. Yeah. Great. I go every year. I think the year five or something for me. Yeah, um, same. Jeff and Jeff Sarah is one of my best yeah, friends. And- I talked to him today. <laughs> As did I just before I got on this call. It's yeah. amazing. Bob Jeff. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm still as close to it as I could possibly be. You know, and in in and in that time, you know, I had a show on entertainment for five years in prime time, five nights a week hosting this thing called the Daily Ten, where Ryan Seacrest was my lead in. Yep. You know, I've I've worked at Vice as doing real like more correspondent deep dive storytelling on a show that called Vice World of Sports that I got to co-create. Mm-hmm. Got to got to go and, and work the World Cup of Soccer in South Africa for two months doing human interest stories. Been to two, two Olympics, Winter Olympics, and just got back from Tokyo a few months ago as well for so through, things for its debut. Through all of this, you mentioned the passion you where you find have found the confluence of everything you grew up doing and everything just felt right. Did that ever waver? Have you just like to this day, you're like, I found it. I love this. This is my thing. I think whenever I feel like I've exhausted one bucket within the thing, I find another space where I think I can play and 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 feel like I can almost be starting from the beginning again. You know, yep. so that's what was that's what was nice about like the experiment of working in a daily news entertainment show where it's nothing like the X games, but at the same time, that was sort of like my grad school when it came to television production, because now I learned how to write and I have to do a show every day and make it cool. And I got to go to press junkets and I I have to make this thing that is kind of like salacious digestible and and fun and do it with a wink and a nod so that it's not cheesy and and so that i remember that after the first six months that i was at e and i came back to do uh the winter x games everybody at espn was like what happened to you like you were good before but now you're like good good now you're like <laughs> now you're like a professional and i was like yeah I've, I've, I've been training every day as opposed to doing an event and like going off and surfing and skating for a couple of months, you know? When people forget how much that is such, like everything is a muscle, works like a muscle. Like if you train at it, no matter, mental, physical, it all works the same in that sense. 10,000%, man. To this day, I don't like long layoffs because I'm like, fuck, do I still know how to do the thing? Yeah. That's kind of been my my motivation. You know, that's how I got into into producing and being like, okay, what I've I've been in and around television and, and storytelling for the last, at that point, it was like, you know, 13, 14 years, what kind of stories do I want to tell? Yep. And so that's how I started producing. When and you wrote a book too as well, correct? Just published a book, just published a, oh, this is uh, recent. a book called Afro Surf. Just, I started another brand 
co-founded another brand, a, a, a lifestyle streetwear brand called Mami Wata. That's from South Africa. Uh-huh. And just sort of, it's a surf, surf style lens, surf style, it's a surf lifestyle brand through an African lens. Yeah. Um, largest continent on earth that of that's surfable. Yeah. No one tells the story of surfing uh, in Africa. And so with that, we, we decided to do this book called Afrosurf that I co-published during COVID, during lockdown. Did a Kickstarter for it, sold about 1,400 copies. And then nice. when it started getting passed around last Christmas, suddenly we started getting calls from book publishers. And the folks at Penguin Random House and 10 Speed were like, hey, we want to do this for real? And so we, we, we published that in June put it out in June and it's going nuts. That's amazing. We've moved, we've moved about almost 20,000 copies since, since it came out in June. There you go. I'm, I, I just pre-launched my book launching in March and the goal was 20,000 copies. So by then. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we didn't plan, we didn't plan for no, it. No, it sounds like, um, yeah, it happened organically. But, uh, it happened organically and it's just, you know, the surfing culture has, is for the most part has been told through a very distinct lens, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's very much this like SoCal beach bro or, or like Southern Australian sort of story, a little bit of like the Polynesian history, but it's not really told through very other lenses, but it's yeah. happening globally. Yep. And the brand, the brand certainly don't do so. And so to, to be able to, you know, my father was a political exile in South Africa for 30 years um, due to apartheid. Yep. My, my connection to it is, is deep and rooted. When he finally got to start going back home in 1991, I started going there and started surfing there and it changed my whole outlook on the world. So to be able to now be still chasing my passion of shredding and, but doing so through, through telling this deeper story that goes back to my origin. Yeah. It's insane, you know, um, and, and continue to find really, a deeper passion, which is cool about That's what I'm hearing yeah. in your story. You continue to like connect the dots even more and more throughout your life. Keep, keep mining the thing relative to where you are at today. Yeah. You know, I think it's easy sometimes to get caught up and see what other generations are doing or what other kids are doing, et cetera. And be like, ah, do I need to like, no, (laughs) I do not. I need to listen to the kids. I need to pay attention to what they're doing. I need to pick up on where their points of reference are and be aware so that you can continue to grow. But like, don't try to pretend or be them. You know, just tell, tell, tell stories, the things that I have to give relative to, to where I am today and, and the sum totality of my experiences, which like, I don't care how many followers you have and how much content you're firing off. You, you ain't got these stories or these experiences or these touch points. You have yeah. to live them. And, and that's, that's where uh, I think your, your, your depth of brand wealth lies when it comes to like what am i going to do next it's like yeah. it's it's the summation of the shit that you have lived up until now no, i totally agree so three last questions for you one you still get to snowboard and surf all the time yes like i got a epic pass and nice. and, and an icon pass and um like i said i'll, I'll be a bald face celebrating bald face. that's bringing it, bring, yeah. bringing it bringing in the new year at bald face as i have consecutively for the last eight years. Assuming um, they don't stay sur- shut down, my wife and I will be on Lek in Austria. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, nice. So last two questions. One, what's next 
Like what do you, what do you, you know, you've got this book, you've got the new fashion company coming up and the, you know, streetwear, like, what do you, would do, is, are you focused on that for the next few years? Or do you think you're, that's the life goal or where do you think you're going next? Um, I, I continue to find new ways to tell stories. You know, I, 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 I make music as well. I record under Alakazam, which is Masakela backwards. Oh, cool. And I've had a lot of fun with that. I get my music in lots of shows and stuff. Um, you can find it on Spotify and all the platforms. So continue to make a little bit more music. I have a bunch, a, a couple of shows and a, a film project that I have in development that I hope to get out there in the next year or so. Continuing to 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 figure out how to storytell. You know, am yeah. I going to con- continue to? Um, I got a book in me for sure, a, a memoir in me for sure that uh, that I've been sketching out as well. I have my podcast, What Shapes Us podcast, that I'm relaunching right now and i'm in a in a very sort of um in in i'm excited about this this book and this brand and um turning take taking that that and and turning it into moving pictures as well got it and last question for someone up and coming that next passionate surfer or whatever that passion might be what would be your one piece of advice you either wish you heard or you did hear that really kept you going along the way to really pursue that dream and kind of achieve it at the highest level? No one has, literally no one else has what you have to give. So just stick to that. As much as you might be tempted to emulate someone else because it looks cool, only they can do what they're doing. You know, it's funny, you mentioned Rob before. Yep. And in a one of one, the, the manner in which that man's brain has been wired ever since he was a pro skater. Yeah. Like he was the only person who saw the hustle beyond um, and what it would take to actually like make it past actually just the physical skateboarding part um, and built this incredible machine um, that is, you know, when I look at what Rob's done, in the last 15 years, I'm like, they're going to write, they're going to write books about this dude, you know, oh, yeah. but no one else could do that. Yeah. So be inspired by, but don't try to do what anyone else is doing because no one else has what you have to give. And I think I spent certain parts of my life thinking that I needed to chase this person or that person. And suddenly it was like, Oh, it's all, it's all right here. And I don't have to stress about it because it's literally yep. right here. Well, Salema, this has been truly awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. I appreciate it, sir. And like I said, I hope uh, uh, Tony just calls you one day and says, (laughs) you know what? How much is it going to take? I think we might be past (laughs) that point. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I, I, um, I, I appreciate you taking the time in the space. I checked out some of your other work. It was very impressed. And good luck with your book, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. And have, have fun at Baldface. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an e, media.com. 
You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.